I'll say a few things prior to that. And I'll move this over. So th this last period, um, in, a, in a few moments, uh, Ani Pema and Ajahn Sumedho will each speak for a shorter period, perhaps 15 or 20 minutes, leaving then an hour for uh, a last general discussion in the group of things that remain. And in that time, the, the rest of us who have been uh, speakers will also come up here so you can address questions to any of us. Um, as I've been listening today to the, what Sister Sundara called the, the I-word, the issues of, uh, <laughs> of the day, um, I've just kind of picked up pieces of what they are. And, and on one level, uh, there are particular ones for each of the different traditions. Uh, um, and some of them are shared, for example, there is questions about, uh, in Theravada tradition, the uh, equality and um, uh, practice opportunities, not practice opportunities, but the equality in the tradition between men and women. Um, and I know that the uh, Catholic Church and the Christian tradition has also wrestled over many years, and especially in this, in this century, with uh, women in the church and their roles and how that should fit together. Uh, there are issues or concerns um, among, uh, that, that Brother David raised among the, the Catholic monastics about uh, temporary ordination and whether there's some place, as he had suggested, for something other than making a lifetime commitment to a particular monastery that would include other lay people or people who wish to be part of a monastic life. And is there some middle ground? And actually there's a group of people here that, partly due to my own confusion and ignorance, weren't included in a full way in this conference. There are, there are several nuns from the San Francisco Zen Center where um, who are not necessarily, be cel necessarily celibate as the other monastics here are, but have taken vows as nuns or as monks, um, but also don't necessarily stay in the monastery all the time. They have a period of monastic training. And for me, not understanding that, I didn't, didn't even understand that tradition and still don't so well. Um, I haven't figured out how that fits together with these other kinds of monastics. But the question that it raises is, is that, again, is there a place between uh, living a fully celibate life in a monastery and living uh, a lay life? Is there some other intermediate place? And that's a question that sounds like both the church and, and the Zen tradition, perhaps the others, wrestle with. Similarly, um, in a number of the traditions, uh, uh, certainly for Ani Pema coming from uh, the Kargyu lineage, which has especially her own teacher and others who are, as she described, um, uh, part of the uh, school of crazy wisdom. Um, there's dealing with the wisdom part, but there's also dealing with the crazy part. Um, and so the teachers manifest in a number of both wise and crazy ways. 
Um, and there's a lot of struggle and wondering about how to integrate that and deal with that in one's spiritual life. That's not unique to that tradition. I think in all of the uh, tradi- traditions, monastic or otherwise, Theravada and um, Zen and uh, Christian and so forth, there are, there are issues and concerns of of the uh, of appropriateness and behavior of leaders and teachers and and role models and and uh, and so forth. Um, in a way, as I listen, I hear that. Um, there are shared issues among different groups. There are ones that are quite particular, but that there are always issues. That and if cer- certain something is solved or something that needs to be addressed is faced and dealt with, even difficult though it might be, then that simply makes the space for whatever's next to arise, which will be the next thing. Um, uh, and that, in a sense, is what uh, human life is about. Uh, for those of you who come to Vipassana retreats, uh, I often uh, tell the story of Pope John XXIII, um, who wrote at one point, sometimes I awake at night and start to think about some great problem uh, and uh, decide that I must go and speak to the Pope about it. And then I wake up more fully and remember I am the Pope. <laughs> and in some way, I think that's true for, for all of us in spiritual life, that there's a certain level in which there are all these problems that we have to solve. And they need to be honored and seen with the same clarity as anything else. They are our practice. And on the other hand, to imagine that you solve those and then everything will be fine in monastic life or lay life or whatever, Um, is an illusion. Um, It's the very being in the presence and remembering what one's true nature is um, and bringing that to bear on what arises uh, that transforms, uh, not only creates a solution for problems, but but transforms our being in the process, which is really what it's about. Um, So I pass the microphones to Pema. And how long? 15 minutes? 15, 20 minutes. Let's say 15 minutes. more questions after these two days than answers. And uh, the main question that keeps uh, coming to me is, uh, how do things change? And I have no answer for that at all. All that I know is that things do change whether we like it or not. Historically, if you look at Buddhism, that's one of its uh, 
inspiring qualities is its adaptability and flexibility. So that as Buddhism moved to all these different Eastern countries, it adapted and it changed. But how did that happen? Because now here's uh, Buddhism bang in the 20th century North America and then a different situation Europe. It's going also South America and it's moving west and each place it goes this, uh, there obviously will be adaptations and changes but how, how do things change? I don't know. We, we know, I think, quite clearly that the future is the result of how we work with our minds now. To the degree that we open our hearts and minds to the present moment, that creates our future. So maybe the other question is, where are we going? What direction are we going in? Well, we don't know, but I think we have aspirations. And they definitely have to do with uh, manifesting acting and speaking and living the true Dharma, which has to do with uh, connecting with our wisdom, uh, sanity, bravery, some sense of uh, aliveness, which doesn't uh, continually refer back to, uh, that's the other I word, is this one. I think the other one you were referring to with issues, but there's also this I word. So open-heartedness and open-mindedness. So then we have a kind of interesting contemplation there. We have the contemplation of how do things change and the contemplation on not just hearing the Dharma, but living it, experiencing it, with every breath and every movement of the mind and every uh, second of our existence. And they are connected. So when we talk about issues, which I imagine when the questions come, that's what we're going to talk about. The real point is that the absolute and relative are one thing. And you can't just uh, smooth everything out with absolute answers, nor can you just get drowned in the relative truth. 
But somehow, these two aspects of reality are continually informing and educating each other. And they're completely interconnected, in fact, simultaneous. So that how we work with these issues, that's the key thing. Problem solving is not the key thing. Getting it to work out the way you think is right is not the key thing. The key thing is how do you handle your mind and your emotions, your heart? What is your spirit as you work with a burning issue, something that strikes you as uh, painful and uh, unjust, an issue that you feel is um, harming people, a sense of injustice. How do you work with that? Last night we were talking and we, we talked about righteous indignation. You know how righteous indignation works. I am righteously indignated (laughs) about my view, and you are righteously indignated about your view. And uh, then we have racial conflict, religious wars, and uh, hatred and aggression appearing in many, many forms. So these issues that we have if they are the ground of more aggression it doesn't matter if we win we've lost so whether the issue is uh, the place of women the uh, notion of authority or whatever it might be I don't think uh, there's any idea that you shouldn't um, speak out and be engaged and uh, follow your heart in terms of what you think this world needs. But if that speaking out and that uh, engaged behavior is not based on uh, wishing to uh, cut through aggression, small-mindedness, and ego-centered clinging. And then we just end up with the same samsaric mess that we had before we started. So issues are great teachers. no matter how painful it is, and in fact, sometimes the more painful it is, the more it um, undercuts your selfishness, the more it humbles you, the more it opens your heart. I once uh, recently, I saw a, um, visiting my sister, and uh, we were watching a television show about a man who had started all kinds of environmental, uh, very good environmental uh, projects. And uh, there was a lot of footage of his whole life up to the present time. And his whole life, in the beginning, was very go-getter, somewhat uh, aggressive because he had this tremendous energy. 
and his motivation was good. But he has this tremendous energy, and he's always fighting for uh, the environment. And his life story was one of creating institutions uh, that were extremely good and did a lot of help, but he always ended up getting kicked out of the institution because somehow his ideas kept going further than the institution was willing to go. And then he'd be very angry and disappointed, but he also had a lot of energy, so he would instantly start another institution, just change the name, and people would rally around him, and he'd keep on going to save this planet. And a few years later, he'd get kicked out of that institution, and it just kept happening like that. And the most touching thing about this was that this man in the present moment has so much humor and softness, and he's been so humbled by this whole thing that he stands up now and says, well, this is what I think the earth needs, and I know that everyone's going to vote against me, but I'm used to that. Everyone's always voted against me. And he says it with humor and humbleness and very little aggression, no aggression, uh, very little arrogance, actually no arrogance. So his life, he started out such a go-getter, probably pushing people away to get out of his way, right and left, to accomplish this good thing that he wanted. But somehow he let his life humble him instead of the opposite, which so often happens. That same life story could have been one of a very bitter, resentful man about all these institutions that had kicked him off, that he had started. How could they do that to him? Oy vey. <laughs> So if you get my point, I'm not sure how things change, but I think we have a lot of teachings in uh, all the world religions, and here we've been talking from the Buddhist and the Christian point of view, and many of you represent other disciplines as well. And generally speaking, a spiritual path is about non-aggression and opening one's heart and one's mind. And so when, when we relate to issues, we have to remember that the future we want a good future, an uh, open-hearted future, less a selfish future, a future that people can grow up in and feel inspired, connect with their own wisdom, that the situation actually encourages that rather than discourages that. And that will never happen if we don't deal with the issues that uh, we find in the present with compassion, non-aggression, and as much egolessness as we can muster. So let issues be our teachers, and I think uh, the future for the planet will be a much more cheerful one. Uh, it's been a very uh, impressive meeting indeed uh, to hear the uh, these talks from other monastics. Uh, I really cherish this and value this uh, because it's a rare rare opportunity for me anyway. Uh, the I think in Buddhism sometimes we we don't uh, we tend to be so concerned with with our practice and our 
in ourselves that we forget, uh, we don't relate to the ultimate reality as, as, our, as our goal, our realization. So that so many people uh, who are practicing Buddhist meditation uh, tend to do it more to solve their problems or to, to make issues out of life, um, to find some peace of mind, or to just calm down. But to me, uh, Buddha's teaching is a transcendent teaching. Its whole purpose is to transcend the world. And that doesn't mean to ignore it, but to, to be able to see the world as the world in a perspective uh, as it is. In Buddhist terms, uh, uh, the world is not the physical world. When, when we talk about the world, in, in uh, Buddhist terms, not talking about planet Earth. We mean, when we talk about the end of the world, we mean the end of a world we create out of ignorance. And so, we, oftentimes, people will be a bit put off by the way things are phrased in, in the suttas, talking about uh, the end of the world as a goal of enlightenment. <laughs> and we see the world very much as a material planet. But in Buddha's way of teaching, it's a, it's a psychological world, a world of illusion that we create out of ignorance. And this is the, the world that ends. And the rest is Dharma, or the truth of the way it is. So the, the aim, say, in Buddhist practice is to, to, in our refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, is to be the the knowing that that which sees the Dhamma, in other words, that relationship of the Buddha knowing the truth of the way it is, which is transcending me and mine and the world I create out of my conditioned mind. Now this is, uh, um, when we talk about taking the three refuges, this, this is what I really mean, and sometimes we, we don't take refuge in anything. We end up with refuge in our own opinion or in, a, in our own attachments to, say, techniques or teachers. But the real refuge uh, is in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, which isn't uh, a, a refuge, say, that is merely a traditional chant or some nice idea, but it is in the ability of the human individual to be mindful and see the truth. So that's the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. And then that is also the refuge in Sangha, or the one who practices in that way, in that way of reflection, mindful reflection, use of wisdom to see the truth of the way it is. And so the Buddha's teachings are all helpful, skillful means towards that uh, realization. To be able to break through all the conditioned aspects of our mind and our attachment to the body, to the consciousness, uh, and to the uh, mental states that we have, as from that view of this is me and mine. And then when we when we see that we needn't do that anymore, then we can actually serve our 
teachers, our communities, our families, society, uh, planet Earth, in a way that is uh, with wisdom and compassion rather than just a lot of ideas uh, coming from the, a basically wrong position of me and mine and what I think, what I want, which always is a separative function of the mind. If there's me, then there has to be you. And, and as long as I am attached to any, any view about myself, then you're in some way going to be uh, 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 in uh, an object and, uh, and something separate. And so we, we create endless problems. We create each other. We create a, a false world. We create problems, issues about everything. And then we, we would like to solve all these problems and get rid of these issues to find some peace. And then the tendency for many people is to ask someone else to do it. Like we pray to God or to ask the Messiah or the Maitreya to come and clean up the mess we've made. And it's still very immature, isn't it? It's like a little child who makes a mess, finds himself in a terrible situation and cries for mommy and daddy to come and save the day. But religion is, to, is, is for maturity, maturing, and where we, we no longer request or demand uh, even the, the powerful, uh, the, the powers that be in our universe that we can't even see directly or know in any, any perceptual way. We're not asking for favors or special privileges or any help at all because the, the real, what we can do is to understand the truth or see the Dhamma, let go of the delusions we create out of the self-view. Now to me that is what also what Christianity means to me, that in, in, the, in a different type of symbolism, uh, different way of speaking, different uh, conventions, then that to me must be what the Christians or what Jesus Christ was, was aiming at, because that is truly wise, truly mature and free and uh, getting beyond the, all the, the problems and difficulties that we create through our selfishness, through attachment to desire and fear. I think uh, during this, this weekend we've had many uh, good opportunities to reflect on these, on these uh, thoughts. And we more and more see that it's something we can do ourselves. And, and it's something, if we're really sincere, we have to do it ourselves. We can't ask someone else to do it. And don't wait for somebody to make everything right for you in, in regards to, say, the position of, of nuns in the Theravada. I just don't want women to wait around till we get a bhikkhuni order because that might never happen because... They don't need a bhikkhuni order to be enlightened. And so, I'd rather they get enlightened than become bhikkhunis. <laughs> and that's what I, my main emphasis has been in, in teaching uh, in England. And not that I'm against or don't want a bhikkhuni order. I mean, I'd really like to have a bhikkhuni order. Things would be very nice. Uh, except, I have the vaguest idea of how to do it. 
and, and I'm not in a position to do that. So, so but I, I, I'm doing the best I can with the material I have. And, and therefore, I don't think anyone could ask me to do more than that without, if they really understood uh, what it is. They are very impressed by Sister Sundra's talks indeed, because I seldom get to hear her give a talk. And, and uh, I realize what she's had to put up with, and not all her fault either. Because <laughs> uh, starting a community and and uh, getting things going, starting anything, is a real hassle. And uh, starting a monastery is a, is, is a really big hassle uh, for everyone. And I'm just uh, very proud of her that she uh, had the uh, faith and the, and the strength to bear with us. We went through some really hard times as uh, all of us, the, the monks and the nuns. But also, one can see that there's that just the willingness to to use Dharma, to practice, and to uh, contemplate, and to really recognize where you where you go off, where you suffer, where where you uh, where the suffering is. Then then you can really see how not to suffer. Though I like to reflect on that that the Buddha taught only two things: suffering and the end of suffering. Uh, and I remember that I, I've always tried to remember this in my life because sometimes it didn't seem quite enough. One would like to have had a little more. <laughs> and, <laughs> and yet in the, in the long run, now that's just enough. That's, if you can do that, you, you've, you've got it. And, uh, and then we realize that there isn't any suffering. There's no such thing. It's an illusion. <laughs> and so there's absolutely no suffering at all. And, uh, and if you, when you realize that, then there's nothing to fear and nothing to desire. And, uh, and, there, there, and then the, the ability then, from a mind that isn't attached and deluded, is a responsive, uh, response to compassion, through kindness, love, joy, uh, serenity. These lovely qualities, these divine virtues operate through us. We have amazing abilities in human individual beings to, to be the vehicles for uh, universal compassion. We don't have to be pollutants on the planet, pests and nuisances. We can actually be uh, universal blessings. Each one of us has that potential of being a great blessing, uh, a, a great loving blessing uh, uh, of compassion and joy, and a, real, and a very peaceful presence and influence on this planet, in this society, as long as our bodies uh, exist in this form. So this we need to also recognize is that is, it's not only getting enlightened so we don't have any suffering, but when there isn't any suffering, then what's left is, is the ability to radiate and to, to be that in the, in the society, in the universe we live in, that, 
that is the vehicle for the universal compassionate forces or energies or powers, whatever they are, uh, the, the experience of joyfulness and, and uh, the, the beautiful peace and equanimity that we can be just as a presence within this human state. Uh, and it doesn't matter what health or how good your health is either. Uh, and one can still be perfectly peaceful, joyous being uh, in the most wretched, uh, decrepit, diseased body. Because this is, this is not anything to do with the body, but it's the freedom of the heart to, to not be attached, not be deluded by uh, anything whatsoever. Our existence here is a mystery. It's still mysterious. Uh, and as Sister Columbus so nicely pointed out, the, more you, the, more, the longer you practice and contemplate, the more you realize you don't know anything at all and that you're just open to the mystery and you totally trust in that receptivity and openness and take whatever happens and no requests, no, no bartering, no, uh, no demands on the universal powers that be, just the total uh, trust and freedom uh, and, and fearlessness of the heart to learn from life as we have to bear it in the forms we're in and the experiences we have to have. So that becoming a, a, a bhikkhu or a, or a monk or a nun or whatever, you, instead of becoming an enlightened being that really knows everything about everything, more and more you just realize you don't need to know anything or everything or anything there's just the ability to know uh, things as they are and to, to just trust in that very simple way of knowing and being. So uh, I think I'll end uh, my part on just that note uh, for you to, to try to bring, uh, say, this final meeting as uh, just to see that the, what religion is about and its aim and its goal to, to bring us to, to our true state, our natural state and perfection within this mortal frame. If I could ask Brother David and Sister Columbo and uh, Sister Sundara to please join us up here. You two direct your questions or comments either to the group in general or, or if you wish, to any particular person here. Um. I, I'd like to ask Pema uh, Chodron, how was the decision made that you would go to China to receive ordination? And was that your teachers uh, sending you or no, because uh, it seems to be the same situation in Theravada tradition that there's no set, there's no way to create the bhikkhunis, so it had to be made up. Um, so I'd just like you to share your experience of how that came to be made up. Well, I was sent, I was requested that I go, and then that particular trip for some reason got a lot of publicity, and then that seemed to make it easier for other people to go. 
before that, it's hard to figure out where to go. <laughs> uh, but what do you mean by made up? That uh, sumedo is is uh, referring to the fact that there is no bikuni tradition, and and uh, you know it's a hassle to create one, or you know it's a confusing. How he doesn't know how that could be done. So I'm just wondering, did you not have the same situation? How did you respond, and how did your teacher respond, and, and facilitating? And who sent you the trumper his Holiness the Gawa Kamapa, 16th Gawa Kamapa. What? In China, the uh, Bhikshuni order was never lost. At the time of the Buddha, there were Bhikshunis. His aunt was the first Bhikshuni. And uh, in China, it was never lost. Also, I believe in Korea, it was not lost, and uh, I should know more about this. I think there's some other places it wasn't lost, but most places it was, and uh, and some places it never went. And that included a Burma, I believe, and Thailand, and Tibet. Uh, Tibet, however, had novice nuns, long-established tradition of n novice nuns. So that part was easy for us. Uh, Western women have for quite a few years now been ordained as novice nuns, which means uh, ten precept nuns. Um, but no gelongma, they call bhikshuni gelongma. So when His Holiness the Karmapa came to North America, he just had the feeling that culturally uh, Western women it would be good if they had this ordination. He didn't talk about it very much. He just started telling people to go. He told, asked me if I'd go, and also bring back the texts so they could be translated and things like this. So that's how it happened. And uh, how that uh, actual uh, transition will occur, that's in process now of, of uh, Tibetan, of the Bhikshuni vow being returned to Tibetan Buddhism. But there are Tibetan women also who have gone now, not just North Americans or European women. Yeah. Do you require, uh, what is it, 20 bhikshus and 10 bhikshunis in order to be, to carry on your validation within your lineage? Uh, it was, uh... The, it has to do with how many bhikshus and bhikshunis need to be present in order to carry on the ordination of curious. Right. It also differs, I believe, my vinya is not all that good, but I think it's different whether you're in a border country or whether you're in a mainstream country in terms of how many you need. But uh, 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 the pictures, the Chinese pictures, probably could tell me better. But I think we had three main people and ten witnesses, uh, both pictures and pictures. I guess my question is: Can you, in your lineage now, can you ordain people, or do you have enough Tibetan nuns? To be able to carry on the uh, you see, this is all in process, but we do have to be ordained 12 years, I think. Is it 12? You did 10 And you still would need pictures. Yes, yes. But what's being worked out between Chinese and Tibetans is if there can be a mixture of Chinese and Tibetan, you see, and this is what they're working out. But uh, 
the uh, three three main ones. Upadaya, the and Acharya, yeah. and then seven uh, certified masters. And then seven. So the idea was, I don't know how this is all going to be worked out, but that for uh, those of us who have been uh, bhikkhunis for 12 years, uh, then we could take part in that ordination. So that's the idea. And then gradually, you know, things happen gradually, but... Gradually, it could be all Western people at some time, but not right away. Is there a question also, not only of the mechanics of the transmission of the ordination, but one was ordained according to a winnier rule, and so are you, is there, do you have to assume now a Chinese winnier as a Tibetan nun, or is that an issue or not an issue, that you have to assume the winnier of your ordination? System? Well, it is something of an issue, because the... Uh, the bhikshus at the abbey have a different finya than the bhikshunis. Um, so, so we, we talk about this quite a lot. And <laughs> uh, the uh, main vows um, are the same. The, the first, first category, there's more for women than men, but uh, there's the, the, the ones that are more for women occur for men in the second category just to be very kind of vague about this and generalizing, but uh, it's when you get deeper into the vinya that there's differences. But uh, it hasn't been a problem so far. We just stick to our vinya. And, uh, uh, but, I, you know, all this has to be worked out. It's rough, you could say. There are some Tibetans that feel that we should all follow the same vinya, and if they could get permission from Chinese pictures, we, that's what we would do, and so forth and so on. But at this point, we follow two different things. Are you asking the differences between pictures and pictures, or between different countries? I believe the Tibetan traditional picture is probably almost identical to the Chinese, because the Chinese is Identical to the uh, there, one of them is uh, Mula Savastavardhan, that's the Tibetan, and the other is Dharma Guptaka. So, so they're very similar, that's for sure. Yeah, that's right. I, I just don't know how serious people take these minor training. But I, I've done this whole study of what's the same and what's different. And really, it is minor differences, definitely. Thank goodness, right? That makes it easy. <laughs> But I've noticed that some people take what I consider minor for someone else, maybe not, they take it more seriously. So I'm just staying out of this. I, <laughs> I, I did what I was told. In. Could you give one example of, of, a, of, of a difference? difference? What's the one? Like, for example, in our, our tradition, uh, one of the minor rules is we can't um, go in around a pagoda. We can't. You know, go to the uh, urinate around a pagoda. It's not in the Theravada, but it's in the Chinese. That's a minor training. It's mostly common sense. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It's sort of at that level. (laughs) Not to throw the slop bucket over the wall. Things of this nature, not to chew with your mouth open.
it may not have been explicitly stated here, but um, the great majority of the Vinaya rules, if not all of them, um, arose uh, in an organic way after the foundation of the Buddhist uh, order, um, when either the Buddha himself or the community of monks and nuns observed someone doing something that seemed out of harmony with the with the basic intent of the spiritual life, or the lay people came and complained that the monks or nuns were doing something that to them didn't appear uh, proper for monks and nuns to do, and then a story would be told and a new rule created. So it was, it was even at that time a process that was responsive to the circumstances. Could anyone speak about the importance of the celibacy now? Celibacy? Well, uh, somebody has to start. So, I'll start with the lowest common denominator, uh, because I know there are many different interpretations, but uh, this one probably all can agree on, and that would be that uh, even people who are not monastics <coughs> are sometimes so engaged in their work that they, can, uh, that they would have to say to themselves, it wouldn't be fair to a family, maybe even to a spouse, but uh, certainly not to children, if I uh, do this sort of, sort of with my left hind leg uh, running the family. Uh, this is a, a full-time job. <laughs> and therefore, uh, if I'm so totally dedicated to this particular job, I have to remain celibate, and there are uh, research uh, scientists and, and explorers and, and other people uh, who do this for, less, for far less existentially valid reasons than monks do it. So one of the reasons is that monks say we are so totally dedicated to this that that's enough, uh, we cannot run a family on the side. Uh, admittedly, it's the lowest common denominator, but I think it's valid. Now you can build on that from this. What do I done? I would agree with Brother David, and uh, it, it's certainly just kind of a foregone conclusion that in a monastery, uh, people would live celibately because uh, it, it's a totally different lifestyle. You wouldn't. But it's just different. But also, there's a lot of, uh, of spiritual meaning in celibacy. And uh, as I said yesterday in one group, I think we're beginning to appreciate it much more as, as something creative, uh, a way of living that's creative, and not just a repression of sexuality. Uh, it's freeing, and it, at least it's meant to be freeing. And uh, I think that's being understood much better uh, these days. And then as far as uh, 
the clergy, the Catholic clergy being celibate, um, I think that's a, an entirely different matter, and I don't see any reason personally why a, a Catholic priest couldn't be married and have a family. And it's, I think, too, that that's something that's going to happen. But uh, it's very, very hard to change a tradition like that in the church, and especially when the Pope is Polish. <laughs> <laughs> anything against the Poles except that they're, they're much more a traditional people. If uh, the Pope was American, I, I think uh, the scene would be quite different. But you also have to remember that the, the church is in every country in the world and there are lots of people that don't see the, the issue the way the Americans do. So that's something also to take into consideration. If I may say something on a lower denominator, um, uh, having uh, helped to create, establish, and, and live at a retreat center, the one that we have in Massachusetts, which w had previously been a, a large Catholic monastery, and running that for a number of years with a staff of 20 or more people um, and retreats for 50 or 100 or more people at a time year-round, uh, particularly in our staff life, but even with retreatants coming and going, not having celibacy and trying to live in spiritual community, we found it to be um, very complicated. It's not to say that it was bad particularly, but uh, a lot of the uh, time for many people there got involved in starting or ending or or sorting out relations that had some sexual component to it. Um, and it became difficult, in fact, at times when new people would come because it was a small community and, and there wasn't uh, complete celibacy, uh, how those people would enter into the community, whether they would have a sexual relation with someone else and so forth. Um, and again, I don't live a celibate life and I find um, for myself as a married person that, that there's, for me there's also been a great and really important spiritual learning in that kind of intimacy. But I know as far as a small, uh, close community goes that to add in um, uh, non-celibacy, to have people have sexual relations and then leave it open for change of partners uh, becomes um, a mess <laughs> sometimes, and even when it's not, it, it, it tends to take a lot of the energy and focus. And you can, it's workable, you can work with it, but it, would, it really changes the flavor of the energy. So. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.